Missionaries are fairly unpopular people in our community around about us. I remember when I was first employed by the Department of Diocesan Missions, as it used to be called, that uh, one of my near relatives asked me what I was doing, saying I had now left uh, the church uh, parish ministry, and uh, I said to them that I was working for the Department of Missions, and they said, well, what do you actually do? And I said, well, I'm a missionary. And they said, well, where are you going? And I said, oh, well, Sydney. And they said, well, could you tell us what, you know, something else? Because uh, uh, if any of our friends would say, what uh, does Philip do? There's no way we could say he's a missionary. Isn't there another way you could have to describe it? Because it would be a bit embarrassing to know that one of our relatives, a close one indeed, was a missionary, let alone to know that he was a missionary to Sydney. Missionaries are unpopular because uh, seemingly they have imposed Western culture on the rest of the world. Whether they're guilty of that or not, of course, is a historical judgment that uh, is quite questionable. But they are very unpopular for having done it. They are unpopular because they imply that Christianity is a universal religion. In fact, not just a universal religion, but the one and only religion. That it is not satisfactory to leave people worshipping their own gods their own way, but call upon people that they must all worship the one God through Jesus. And therefore they become unpopular because they imply that my standing as a non-Christian is unsatisfactory to God. If someone is going to proclaim to the ends of the earth, they're going to live in amongst the cannibals in the jungles of, Ir- of Irian Gyre or travel through South America at great risk to uh, life and safety, if someone's going to do all that so that people will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, they are implying that all people should come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and if that is the case, they're implying that I should also. Missionaries are very unpopular. No doubt that as you come to read the book of Acts, Christianity is seen as a missionary outgoing concern. For the gospel goes out to all the world as the book of Acts recounts the early history of uh, the Christian movement. And the book of Acts makes those universalistic claims for Christianity, classically in chapter 4, verse 12, that there is no other name given amongst men by which we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. He is the only one, as, as it's put in John's gospel, the only one through whom one can come to the Father is Jesus. But it's a modern problem that we're worried about. Those who, how do people come to God and what about those who have not heard the gospel? They're modern problems, but the book of Acts is not seeking to answer as such. Rather, their problem, their ancient question, is, is it right for the Jewish religion to become a Gentile religion? How can the Gentiles come into the kingdom of Yahweh? How can the Gentiles become Jews without becoming Jews? And why should this this Jewish religion spill out until by the end of a century it seems to be a Gentile religion? Is it right that this should have taken place? The book of Acts recounts to us how what was basically and primarily a Jewish movement, for Jesus, if you remember, went to none but the lost sheep of the house of Israel, how this basically Jewish religion should suddenly become a Gentile religion. Indeed, more than a Gentile religion, the worldwide religion that included people in Australia, red and black, 
was just kind of a chorus. I've never forgotten that. Red and yellow, black and white. That's how I learned it. But now my children learn this red, brown, yellow, black and white. The brown people have snuck in uh, since, since one generation. All are precious in his sight. That is that the, the religion is one for every man everywhere, throughout the world and throughout history. How could that come about when it is so Jewish? When Jesus is so Jewish? When fundamentally he is the Jewish Messiah standing as the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament teaches? How do you move from what is such an exclusive club, Israel, into such an open club, the whole pagan world? The commencement of Acts starts to answer the question. Jesus in his commission to the apostles says that they are to be in Jerusalem and then Judea, then Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And as we read through the book of Acts, we come section by section to their going out to the ends of the world. The Jerusalem church we read about in the early chapters was dispersed by persecution, dispersed out to all kinds of areas and in particular to the Samaritans as we read in chapter 8 about the Samaritans, those most unloved of all Jewish neighbours who became Christians. We read in chapter 9 of the conversion of Paul, and it seems a strange interlude, this man Saul, but we're going to pick up on his work tonight and for the rest of the book of Acts indeed, for he becomes particularly the man who goes to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus. So we read on in chapter 10 of the first Gentile converted, the man Cornelius, and in chapter 11 of how the Jerusalem church came to accept the conversion of a Gentile, and his family. And in chapter 12, we read further, uh, sorry, in chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, we read further of the establishment of the first Gentile church in a place called Antioch in Syria. To our confusion, there were two Antiochs, one in Syria and the other we read of tonight in Asia Minor, in a place called, uh, uh, an area called Galatia or Pisidia. But the first Gentile church is established in chapter 11. And this Gentile church sends back aid to the Jerusalem church. The book of Acts is concerned about this relationship between the Jew and the Gentile in becoming Christian. Now, the Antioch church in chapter 13 we read of again. And the Antioch church in Syria is to become the springboard for world evangelism. The whole missionary movement doesn't come ultimately out of Jerusalem, but out of Antioch. And Luke makes it quite clear in writing the book of Acts that the movement comes under the direct guidance of the Spirit as has taken place all the way along the line. Every part of the process so far has come not at the thought of men, but at the guidance of God's Spirit. It was because of the persecution that the people spread. It was under the guidance of the Spirit that the Samaritans were preached to in the first place, that the Ethiopian eunuch was converted, that Cornelius was preached to and converted. The guidance of the Spirit has been very clear up till now and in chapter 13 in the first three verses in a church filled with prophets and teachers they find the Spirit speaking to them saying that they are set apart the men that God has called, that he has called to a particular task. And so after fasting and after prayer they step forward in the faith of the gospel of Jesus. They step forward under the Spirit's guidance to do this work. And they send these men who go firstly to Cyprus. They evangelise Cyprus from one end of it to the other. And they reach finally on the western part of it 
the government. And they come to the court of the proconsul. Here in the court of the proconsul, they are confronted with a sorcerer. A man whose name is by Jesus, Elimas. He stood opposed to God and to the gospel. And Paul denounced him in one of the worst press releases that has ever been given to a man in verses 10 and 11. You are a child of the devil, he says, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? There's a friendly discussion they're having at this stage, which leads to, to young Elimas being, uh, being at least temporarily blinded. The gospel in its power over the forces of evil is being shown here as it was back in Samaria with that previous worker of evil. The proconsul, in sharp contrast to Herod of last week and last chapter, who was killing the Christians, the proconsul wanted to hear God's word. Sergius Paulus, we read, was keen to hear in verse 7 the word of God. And seeing what took place, he believed. Believed because he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord, verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. It wasn't just the miracle that persuaded him, but the teaching of God. Here is the gospel then spreading out to, to areas of, of life that we didn't expect it before. It's a strange thing that people in government may get converted. Hard to believe that of a politician, isn't it? That it is possible. This gospel actually overrules people who are under the sway of the demon and devil and of all manner of occult can have power over such a one. The gospel can have interest, fascination and even saving power over a Roman, a Roman government official. There is an extraordinary thing. Where will the gospel end? There's no difficulty now that this Gentile should be converted. For we've already accepted a Gentile convert in Cornelius. But the gospel is still Jewish. It is basically Jewish. And in the next episode, in verses 13 to the end of the chapter, we find Paul goes and preaches now in Asia Minor. Fortunately for us, we stop calling him Saul and can call him Paul from here on in. When he goes preaching, the first place he calls in is the synagogue. It is his custom. He did it in Cyprus back in verse 5. He was preaching in the Jewish synagogues. But we see it in verse 14. When he goes from Perga on to the Pisidian Antioch, on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. First place for them to go is the synagogue. I don't know how many of us here have ever been to a synagogue. I suspect very few of us. It is not our custom to go to synagogue. It would make an interesting variation on our weekends to spend Saturdays there and Sundays here. But for some of us, we have been to synagogue and been there often. I suspect, though, that if we were appointed to be missionaries somewhere, we wouldn't think of starting off in the synagogue. You may, and I'm sorry if I do you an injustice on the matter, but if you're appointed to uh, be the missionary to West Wyalong, I doubt whether the synagogue is the first place you would look for. 
I don't think I have one there anyway, but I suspect you wouldn't go looking there. Yet for Paul, the synagogue is the first place to go. That's because Christianity is still thoroughly Jewish. He'd be Jewish. Paul considers himself to be Jewish. There's no reason for any separation between Christianity and Judaism. Indeed, Christianity, the gospel, is Jewish. And it is the right place to go for the Jewish people, God's people, are the first people who should hear the great news of God's victory, of God's Messiah. He has come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I must go firstly to them. You see it in Paul's writings in Romans 1.16 where he speaks about the gospel is for, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And he always goes, starting off with the synagogue, not just because that might be the first place to get a hearing, an easy place to get a hearing, but because that's where God's people gather to hear God's word. And it is God's word he wishes to proclaim to God's people. And so he goes to the synagogue, as is his habit. The synagogues were comprised in those days of two audiences in the Mediterranean world generally, not necessarily so much in Jerusalem. One audience were the Jews. The other were a group of people who became interested in Judaism and the things of God. Some of them had become proselytes, that is, they had moved towards becoming uh, Jews and being circumcised in the life. Others were still just generally God-fearers who would sit in the back row and listen. They were Gentile people, but who were admitted into associate membership within the synagogue so as to hear the word of God, so as to come into contact with the God of Israel. You see them referred to several times in this chapter. Look at verse 16 when Paul starts speaking. He says, after the reading of the uh, law, and this, verse 16, uh, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Or well, down in verse 26, we read, Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles. It is, or again, down in verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Or again in verse 48, when the Gentiles, who were in the synagogue at this time, when they heard this, they were glad. So it goes on. The Gentiles were there. I guess in some senses it's like this church here. It might be as marked or as confused as this. It might have been clearer than this. There are people who come to church here because they believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and are happy to testify to the fact that they're Christians. But there are also people who come to church here who are just interested in Christianity. Might have a Christian friend, might have just heard about Christianity, might have read a Bible recently and just got themselves interested, might just like to find out what's happening. And so we'll come and, and sit somewhere in amongst the crowd and listen to what is taking place. And, and we'll think and search and inquire further after the things of God. A congregation, a synagogue in, in the ancient world was like that. A little bit more clearly marked in that the differentiation between Jew and non-Jew is a little bit more clearly marked in the differentiation between Christian and inquirer here amongst us. But the two audiences were there in the synagogues. And when Paul preached in the synagogue in Antioch, of Pisidia that is, he starts off recounting the gospel in thoroughly Jewish terms. For all the synagogue audience would be familiar with those terms of Israel and its history. He starts off in verses 16 following, outlining Israel's history, majoring on the great major themes of the people of God. How they were chosen in verse 17 from, God, from all the peoples really. They were chosen by God and how they prospered under Egypt and how 
in verse 17 and 18, they were rescued by God in the Exodus. Then he speaks in verse 19 of the conquest of the promised land. And in verse 20 of the establishment of the judges. And on into the establishment of the kings. King Saul, the first one in verse 21. And in verse 22, after removing Saul, God made David their king. And he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, every Jewish man and every God-fearer who was sitting in the synagogue that day listening to Paul would sit there nodding and say, yes, yes, that is the truth. Yes, that is the story. Yes, this is the... That's what it's all about. That's what the Old Testament is about. That's what the history of Israel is about. The choosing out of the patriarchs, the exodus out of Egypt, the conquest of the promised land, the judges, the king, King David, the greatest of all the kings, the great high point of the history of Israel. So far, everything is thoroughly normal, thoroughly acceptable. This is basic gospel stuff for the people of Israel. But now, just at this point, in verse 23, Paul adds a new chapter to the history of Israel. Jesus. And he says, From this man's descendants, that is, from David's descendants, God brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Here is the new point. Here is the departure into something that is quite radically different. They have asked him whether he has a message, whether they have a message of encouragement for the people. And Paul certainly has a message of encouragement for the people. The history of Israel is finding its fulfilment in Jesus. Israel's saviour has come just as been promised and here is the fulfilment of the promise to Israel. John the Baptist, you've heard about John the Baptist, I'm sure. He was well known in the history of Israel, a prophet of Israel. No one quite knew what to make of him. It was very sad the way he was treated by Herod. But John the Baptist was a well-respected Israel prophet, a Jewish man of, of great godliness and trustworthiness, and John said that he wasn't the one who was coming, but that one other one was coming, who was far greater than he, whose sandals he was not worthy to bend down and untie. And brothers, the one who has come is Jesus. It is this message of salvation that we have come to proclaim, this fulfilment of what all the prophets were saying. Now the Jerusalemites, they didn't recognise Jesus when he came. One wonders whether that's not a little dig at the Jerusalemites and whether it's not a little piece of, uh, uh, of chauvinism at this point and uh, regional disparity, you see. I mean, we people in Antioch and Pisidia, we might know, but those ones down in Melbourne, they wouldn't have a fatal score, would they? When he turned up there, they missed the point. Although it's part of the whole prophetic fulfilment that the uh, Messiah should come to Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem should miss the point. And they actually did a very strange thing. They unwittingly fulfilled the scriptures. For they murdered and executed him just as the scriptures said they would. Even though they were reading the scriptures day after day after day. That's a warning for us, isn't it? A classic warning there about the Jerusalemite people. They read their Bibles, but they so missed the point that they were the ones involved in fulfilling what the Bible was saying by executing the Messiah. There's a warning there, isn't there? Of our need to be careful in understanding what the Scriptures are saying. For indeed, in the Scriptures is the word of life, as Jesus rightly points to the Jews in John's Gospel. They are searching the Scriptures to find life, and indeed in the Scriptures they will find life. But if you do not search the Scriptures, 
with a sincerity of heart, seeking after God, you may find yourself misaligning yourself with the whole purposes of God, rejecting his messenger, as they did, murdering the author of life, as they did. The Jerusalemites didn't recognise Jesus, and so unwittingly fulfilled the prophecy by killing him. However, God raised him up. Now, verses 29 to 31, you'll see that Paul goes to great length. To, well, not great length, but Paul makes a special point of spelling out the physical resurrection of Jesus. They carried out all that was written about him when they took him down from the tree, laid him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Jesus was publicly killed, dead and buried and buried in a tomb, but raised by God and seen by the people. And all this is for the sake of fulfilment, for God is giving, is fulfilling his promises. Verse 32, we tell you the gospel, the good news. What God promised to our fathers, he has fulfilled for us. How? By raising Jesus. That is how God has fulfilled all his promises. Jesus, who died and rose again, is the fulfilment of what the Old Testament, what the Israel faith was all about. How? Well, Psalm 2 verse 7 is the first of the references of the Old Testament that that, uh, Paul at this point refers to. For in the psalm, the second psalm, God says to the Messiah, You are my son. Today I have become your father. The Messiah is the son of God. In the second psalm, the fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words, he says, and then he quotes from Isaiah 55 and further from Psalm 16. The blessing promised to David was that he should become the king and his family should become the king forever. Now, clearly it can't be to David that such a promise is being made because David is dead and buried and you can check out his grave whenever you go to Jerusalem next. Clearly it's not to David but Jesus whom God raised from the dead. Therefore he goes on in verses 38 to 39 to say that forgiveness and justification can be is now to be proclaimed through Jesus. And in verse 40 he gives them a warning from Habakkuk and says, so make sure you listen to this so you don't fall into judgment. Now at that point in the argument, which is the great high point of the argument, your minds have finally given up. What on earth is that about? You may not have experienced that because you have worked diligently at reading your Bibles at that passage and looked up the cross-references and searched it out. But the sermon is actually ground down like the chapter itself, has it not? Because you think, I have lost the sense of what is taking place. What's it got to do with David and his, and his burial site? What's it got to do with Jesus and his resurrection? Let me try and help you. And you'll notice on the top right-hand page, there is a gap without a heading. That is because I knew it would take so long to get through the Jesus bit. And so I knew you'd need more space to fill it out. Isn't that thoughtful? Rowene is very helpful to us in her typing. You see, Jesus' claim for moderns is like this. It's got to do with fulfilment. God makes a promise, and now he is keeping his promise. Now he's giving us what he has, what he has promised. 
make a promise to you. I promise you five dollars over supper. And at supper time you come and I give you the five dollars. I'm making good. I'm fulfilling my word to you. I haven't given you that word. And you won't necessarily get the five dollars. Now David was the king of God's people. And God promised David that his son would sit on his throne forever and ever. You're possibly not old enough yet to want to have eternity work through your veins somehow. To want to feel that you have left your mark. You might be young and megalomaniac and so I've felt this already. But most of us as we grow older want to know somewhere along the line that we are not just number 6,721,485 but that we have actually somehow left our mark in life and civilization. And what greater mark can you have to know that your son will always be the king over God's people appointed by God. The Old Testament looks forward then to the coming of David's son who will rule forever and are very disappointed by the fact that David's line gets snuffed out by a series of, of calamities. They look forward then to the restitution of David's family. Who is it that's going to come? And how will he rule forever over God's people? The resurrection is the answer that Paul is giving here. For the resurrection of Jesus means that he does not die. Now a king who does not die has some good chance of ruling forever. The thing that tends to bring kings to an end is death. That really stops their reign. But one who is going to live forever, one to whom death can have no sway and hold, the one who can rise again from death is one who can rule over God's people forever. It is in the resurrection of Jesus that we find the prophecy to David fulfilled. And it is David's son who is to be the king forever. But the resurrection opens up new dimensions. For now the Messiah, the king, is not a political figure, but a spiritual figure. He's not come to overcome the Roman Empire, or the Greek Empire, or the Egyptian Empire, or any other physical human empire. He has come to overcome sin and Satan and death. That changes the nature of this king. When you say he's the king of God's people, and you equate God's people with the nation Israel, then you're expecting him to be the Jewish king, ruling a political kingdom, Israel, and overthrowing all the enemies of that political kingdom of Israel, be it the Seleucids or the Ptolemies or the Greeks or the Romans or the whoever it might be who raises their arm against this political kingdom. But Jesus comes not to defeat the enemy of Rome, but to defeat the enemy death. He is the king not just of a political kingdom, but of a spiritual kingdom. Therefore, the gospel is for Gentiles as well as for Israelites. For if he had come to be the king of Israel, then where would be the blessing for the rest of us? As he comes to be the king over God's people, a spiritual kingdom, that those who enter in it may be freed from sin and from death, 
then it is something for Gentiles as well as for Jews. Now it's hard for us to grasp hold of the mental block that they were having. But try and grasp it because it's an enormous one to, to understand what the New Testament is about. If you have spent your centuries, not five or ten years, centuries, looking forward to the coming of a political leader who will make your nation top dog nation in the ancient world. And when this man came, he wasn't a politician, he wasn't a military leader, but he was a bloke who was executed. Very hard to grasp hold of what he's about. And you hear he's risen from the dead, and you say, all right, he rose from the dead, but what does that mean? The answer is, it means that he is the king that God has appointed. All right, but how does he help me? I've still got a Roman proconsul running to my show. I've still got the Romans in Palestine. I've still got the Romans. Where, where is the kingdom? The kingdom is over death and sin. I wanted it over the Romans. But you've got it over Satan. It's a spiritual kingdom. Not a physical kingdom. And once it's a spiritual kingdom, it's open to all who are under, under the sway of Satan and sin and death. And so the gospel is a Gentile gospel as well. The popularity of the message of Paul at that day in, in uh, Antioch was such that next week the whole town turned out to hear the message again. And the Jews, seeing the Gentiles' interest, were stirred with jealousy. Not jealousy that Paul could draw a bigger crowd than they could, although that may have been part of it, but jealousy that the Gentiles should seem to be able to give them such free opportunity to be in the kingdom of Israel. When it was a political thing, it was very hard for a Gentile to get in. But now that it's a spiritual thing, it seems to be opened up to Gentiles freely. And so, in their jealousy, they opposed Paul, and we read in verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, whoops, I've missed the point, haven't I? Verse 45, rather, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And verse 46 then becomes the great turning point. It's the turning point of this incident, of this chapter in the, uh, in the book. It actually is also one of the chief turning points in the book of Acts. And I believe it's one of the chief turning points in the history of the world. For at this point, Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly and said, We have to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Previously some Gentiles had been converted on the side as they preached to the Jews. But now, they turn their attention to preaching to the Gentiles themselves and turn away from the house of Israel. And again they do so in fulfilment of the prophecy of Isaiah 49 on this occasion, that the house of Israel is to be a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, the Gentiles are glad when they hear this in verse 48, and as many as are ordained to eternal life believe the gospel and become Christians. But their gladness with which they receive the word is held in stark contrast to the persecution 
that the Jewish people now bring to bear upon the Christians. This then becomes the pattern for the rest of the book of Acts. And we'll see over and again that Paul will come into a town, preach in the synagogue. Some Jews are glad to hear the news and are converted, but the majority are stirred up in jealousy and seek to persecute Paul, who turns to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are converted, and as the Gentiles get converted, so the Jews rise in hostility against Paul and his preaching. And Paul is chased off into the next town. Then what about the gospel in Australia? Well, the resurrection message is a universal message in its effect. Look at verse 47, the prophecy of Isaiah 49, where it says, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus' resurrection message is about salvation, about rescuing people everywhere, at any time, because it is about being forgiven. Where? We need forgiveness. Jesus is about forgiveness. It's about being just, justified, as it says in verse 39, that is, being right with God. We all need to be right with God. It's about being rescued from death. We all face the certainty of death. It's about us. And therefore, it's a message for you and I. It's a message for you and me. We need it. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, is the world's Messiah, is yours and mine. If we but acknowledge him to be that, for he has died that our sins be forgiven. He has risen again that we might be given new life. It is for us that he lived and died and rose again. He is to be our king. And that means that we must preach him to our contemporaries. Jesus is the Messiah for Australia. They wander around in their lostness and their blindness, staggering from one affluent excess to another. But it is Jesus whom they need, for it is through Jesus they can find forgiveness. It is through Jesus they can become right with God. It is through Jesus that our fellow citizens can become the light and be spared of death. But the gospel doesn't stop with Australians either. It must be preached beyond Australia, wherever men need to be forgiven, wherever people need to become right with God, wherever people face death, the gospel must be preached. The great news is there is no limit to salvation. Anybody, red, yellow, brown, black, green, polka dotted, anybody can be saved rich and poor, in government or in opposition, whoever you may be, wherever you may be, the message is for you. There are no bars, there are no, there's no group of people who's beyond the pale. There's no group of people who are so low in degradation or so high in morality for whom the gospel is not appropriate. It is for everyone. That's the great news. The consequence of that great news is there can be no limit to the proclamation of the gospel. We can never reach the stage of saying, well, it's been done now. It is always to be done. 
We can never say, well, that group of people are better off without it. No one is ever better off without it. Which starts to mean that everybody needs it. Which means you need it. And I need it. Then how are we to do this? Oh, well, there's a thousand how-tos, but I'll give you four. One, to preach. That's speak it anywhere, anytime. With anyone on any occasion. And to pray for it. Christians must be committed in prayer, as, as they were right back in chapter 13 and the first three verses. And to give the money necessary to bring people the gospel of Jesus. And if need be, to go. To go to preach the gospel of Jesus. For why? For why is it that we, we think that we can sit in comfort and not care for the people who need the gospel. 